Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello, and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. My name's Lucinda Carney, and I'm your host. And hopefully you've enjoyed our series of conversations with that we've had running over the summer. However, we're back into business as usual, so I thought it might be time for us to do a solo episode. And the topic that I thought I would share with you today is one that's also a topic of a white paper. So if it's something that you find of interest, we've got the information in more detail that you can download from the website um, or from the show notes. So the topic today is delivering organisational change. And we're thinking here of slightly wider change. Many of us within HR are seen as the custodians of change, particularly if it relates to people things, which it usually does. And I'm sure that most of us have come across the adage, which has gone into almost urban folklore now, that 70% of change initiatives fail. And they fail due to people issues. So that's a very well used statement. And I did some digging around and it does seem, I think it was originally attributed to McKinsey 20 years ago, but there's still a number of bodies that show that change is still not as successful as it should be. And much of the time it is down to people's natural responses to change um, and also the way in which it's planned. So I'm not going to go into people's responses today, um, but that is something that we may look at on a future episode. What I wanted to do was look at a model that's often really well cited and is very people are familiar with called Cotter, his eight step change model and talk through it. Uh, maybe with some some examples. As you know, I try to keep it relevant and pragmatic. This is a model that I have used successfully a number of times, and I've also trained it out many, many, many times with people. And there are certain areas, time and again, when we analyse change, that it tends to break, or the change breaks, not the model, and it's predictable. So the purpose of this podcast is to share the model with you if you're not familiar with it, or hopefully bring it to life a little bit if it is something you're familiar with but have never really felt comfortable using. So one of the keys in terms of change we've alluded to, it's seen as change is seen to fail down to people issues. And Cotter is really well known. He published a book in 95 called Leading Change. And he said that much of the problems were down to people perceiving change to be an event as opposed to a process. And I think that certainly that is the case in most organisational change. You can't just do something overnight and expect everybody to change. Yet, time again in businesses, and I've experienced it personally, people at the top maybe consider that just by sending out an email saying this is going to happen and then sitting back that that's going to result in the business benefits and all those things that the change should deliver. And of course, that's not the case. People need to understand why the change is happening. They need to understand what they need to do. They may need to express their feelings and emotions about the change. There's plenty to it. And in many large-scale changes, there's lots of steps that need to go along the way that need to be implemented. 
So Cotter's model, I think, is particularly useful for organisational transformational change. And I think there's a, a theory that's also worth relating to, which can be overlaid on Cotter's model. It's actually by someone called Kurt Lewin. So it precedes Cotter. So it's 1951. He's a psychologist. And he talked about a three-step approach to change. Basically, if you are imagining a curve in front of you or a U-shape, in terms of the change, we've got our status quo on the left at the top of the U. And he said, in order to make a change, what you have to do is unfreeze the current status quo. Then you have to make the change. So I'm now at the bottom of the U going from left to right. And if you're struggling to visualize this, I have got diagrams in the paper. And then we go back into refreezing at the other side. So we've got an unfreeze where we stop what we're doing. Um, there's a freeze and then there's a refreeze. And actually there's a book called um, The Iceberg Has Melted, My Iceberg Has Melted, which is a Cotter book, which uses the stories of penguins in relation to this whole concept and the freezing analogy. So we've probably got that in our minds, this unfreeze, freeze, um, model in terms of uh, unfreeze, make the change and then free, refreeze. And then what we need to do is we need to look at how we can actually um, progress the change in terms of how we might apply the Cotter model. So you've probably heard of it, but in terms of this, and it's actually been updated a number of times, the actual model itself. There are eight stages to this, or actually I say it's an each stage change process. And this is our key, this thinking about change as a process rather than just a, an an event. So the first, and what I'll do in fact, is I'll run through all eight of them and then I'll go back to each one in turn. So the first one that Cotter says is really key is to establish a sense of urgency. The second one is about establishing a powerful guiding coalition. Then what we need to do is to create a compelling vision. Number four is communicate the change. So notice in terms of the um, unfreezing, I would say stages one to three are all about unfreezing. They're about the planning of how to make the change. We only start making the change here when we start to tell people and that's communicate the change. Number five is remove obstacles. Number six is to create short-term wins, which is one I really like. And this is where we're going into the refreeze at stage six and then we go on to consolidate improvements and institutionalize the change. Now, I alluded to earlier the fact that I've found anecdotally, and I'm sure there'd probably be some research that would support this, that there are certain places in Cotter's model where it's not done well, or if it's not done well, the change breaks down. And logically, again, it falls at the, the t stages of transition. So as I said earlier, the, um, in terms of those points, between points three and four, so between the vision and communicating the change, that is a place where, in my experience, often the change doesn't happen. So I said people don't communicate it enough. Cotter says we need to communicate change 10 times more than we think we do. Um, so different formats, frequencies, routes through different uh, people allowing people to um, listen to um, the change and also to ask questions about the change. So communication could be two way. So communication is one of the first places that change doesn't happen in the first place because it's communicated, but nothing happens. The second place where I see that change doesn't happen is you might have done a lot of the hard work, but then it comes to the, the short term wins and the consolidation. So this is the refreeze. So you've done all the work of unfreezing the organisation, making the change, and then going through to consolidating the improvements, 
what happens is we never make it back up that curve. Going back to our U, the consolidate improvements and institutionalizing the changes, what happens all too often is that this doesn't take place. We don't turn that change into business as usual. And it's just seen as something that's new, which means that not everybody goes with you and quite often that change breaks down. So those are the two danger points. I appreciate this might be easier to look at than me explaining it. I hope you're following me, but visualizing that literally it's at those change points, those transition points on the freeze-refreeze model. If we overlay it onto Cotter's model, that's where change is likely to break down. Therefore, if your role is to be a change agent, that's where you need to pay extra special attention in terms of trying to avoid it being a problem. So let's just run through what we mean by each of these steps of change. Establishing a sense of urgency. I'm sure many of us have heard that term burning platform. And this is, it's actually a quite unpleasant metaphor that stems back to the 70s, I think, with people jumping off an oil rig, which was preferable to staying on it. Um, so that was a very compelling sense of urgency for people to choose to change the status quo. Now, clearly that's not the way we want to motivate people in business. But one of the challenges often is that people don't have a sense of urgency with which to change. Even if they think it's a good thing to do, they don't think it's urgent. So we need to consider how we can make the, you know, ensure that there is a sense of urgency, whether it's through there being some benefits if we operate soon or high risks if we don't do something in the next six, 12, 18 months, or even if we put in place artificial deadlines. The first point we need to think about is why should we do this change and why should we do it now? And how do we create some urgency for people who the change is being done to? Now, of course, this is probably in a large scale change happening with a small group of people who've identified that that need to change might happen. So I think of a, an organisation I work for where they moved, they completely restructured. No one knew about it till it was communicated, but clearly they'd been looking at it strategically for years and they had identified that the way in which they were currently structured was not going to give them a competitive advantage over the long term. And if they didn't change within the next 18 months, there would no longer be one or two in their chosen markets. And that was their key vision. So they needed to be a certain way in their certain markets. They completely restructured to align with those sectors. But this decision at this stage was all strategic. Only a few people knew it. The next stage though, where they started to plan it out, was to form a powerful guiding coalition. So this is your change team or your first set of change team. Depending on how big the rollout is, you may have a second change team, which I would call maybe your change champions that you would engage with later when you're trying to implement a change. But at the start, you might have a powerful coalition, a group of people working together, and they are thinking, what do we need to do? How do we plan this change? If you want this to work well, and again, where I've seen change fail, is when this powerful guiding coalition are in a bubble. So you need to make sure that if you're part of it, that you are engaging with the real world. An example of that I can remember is when a system was rolled out and it was a new, I think it was a new expenses system or something. And the people who'd planned it, you know, it made great sense on paper, but when it came down to people in certain manufacturing areas or the way in which they were paid, there were aspects of the existing system which were not understood by the coalition that could not be implemented, which meant that the timeframes were never realistic to roll it out. So my view is if you get part of a, a powerful guiding coalition, 
try really hard to make sure that some of this is involving stakeholder analysis, where you actually go and understand stakeholders right down to those who are using the existing systems and processes. These are the things that can make us become unstuck in that a change is seen on paper to be far simpler than it is when you go out um, and look at the at what has to happen in reality. That said, of course, you know you can go out and talk to people about what happens in reality and get put off and you'd never get started. So there is a level of getting a balance between being a healthy optimist of, and can do and uh, being a realist in terms of understanding what the current status quo is. So then we need to think about a compelling vision. And what this is really doing is starting to frame the communication. So the compelling vision is, you know, why do we need to change? So the sense of urgency was thought of to start with. Now we need to position when we are communicating this change to others in the organisation, what is the to be? You know, we're doing this at the moment, we're saying it's urgent, and what are we going to be instead? And in an ideal world, this needs to be motivational. Um, some, again, it can be a positive or negative, but it's nicer if it's a positive vision. That said, you might have to have two aspects. So it might be we need to restructure into these different sector groups. If we don't do this, we will not be competitive, which might result in job losses. So that's less positive. But can we come up with a compelling vision that we'll be a high performing engineering firm or we will be fully compliant and no one will be at risk of um, being picked up by our regulatory body? It's coming up with the clarity of when we've done this change, what will the outcome be? So that that can be communicated clearly as part of the change comms. Then, of course, we move on to the change comms where we start telling people what's going to happen. And what I'd say is two aspects. I mentioned one earlier. One is that it should be a two-way process. People do have emotional responses to change. So just sending out an email is all very well, but that is not going to help people go through the emotional processes usually associated with change. So we need to be prepared to communicate in a number of methods, formats, through a range of people and we also need to be prepared to listen, which is part of communication, while people um, express their views. That doesn't mean you change anything necessarily, but you have to help people through the process. If you do that, then you will take more people with you. And that's got to be a positive thing, because then you're going to make the change happen faster. Of course, you need to make sure skilled managers, and this is where I was alluding to our champions, this might be where we're going to a broader group of people who are helping to communicate the change, who are on board with it. So that's one aspect that I'm saying in terms of the two areas. We need to make sure that um, it's, it's two-way and it's well communicated. The other aspect is to think about how you frame your communication. And there is a model called format out there, spelled with a format, um, and it's by a lady whose name I can't remember, an Australian lady, Bernice is her first name. Um, I'll put it in the show notes because I can't remember her second name. But what that's basically saying, it's a good way of um, framing your communication if it's a written communication or if it's going to be a presentation. And you essentially need to think about what is the change? You know, you know, a very simple sentence, you know, we're going to move to be sectors as opposed to being um, aligned in our current way. Uh, what is the change? Why is the change happening? So giving people the idea of the why. Why is an interesting one, because if you are smart, you might actually have different levels of change because the why for your shareholders may be a different why for the trade unions, might be a different why for the managers. Um, and when I say that is ideally the why is what motivates people. So the motivator is probably going to be different for different groups. 
Clearly, you can have one set of communication that covers all of them, but do think about trying to make the why as relevant as possible for your particular user group. So we've got our what, our why. Obviously, people then need to know the how. So what does this mean for me? This is, you know, how will you do this? What's the time frame? All of the practicalities. Think about those frequently asked questions and get those set up in advance. And then an interesting one for me, which I hadn't come across before, which is the what if. So this is almost closing the loop. And for those who've done learning and familiar with learning styles, it links to Kolb's um, cycle of learning where we need to go through a whole cycle to take things on board. And this is helping people think about the consequences, almost that what if we do change, but also what happens if we don't? And what that does is it, again, ties up the motivation loop almost in terms of you've got the why, which is the strategic why, but what are the consequences if we don't do this? And what are the consequences if we do do this? And there will be positive and negatives on each. So that's quite an interesting little model you can think of in terms of communication. Using the format model, but also lots of different variations and giving people chance to make um, communication two-way as well. Five, section five is removing obstacles. So this is where the blockers arise. And as I said earlier, if we've done our homework in the earlier stage, we might be able to preempt some of those obstacles and uh, help to embed this and make it flow better. But we will have to overcome problems. We may need to identify what resistors were in place in the first place and work out ways of unblocking them. Thinking about things with, I don't know, systems, this could be, do you need to introduce single sign-on so that you don't have lots of problems with people logging on? Or going back to our restructure, how, how do we, um, we might have blockers in the fact that we've all got our different ways of reporting currently, whether it's a different newsletter, we've got different headed notepaper, um, different ways in which we have expense policies. How can we preempt those obstacles that might stop us being successful and remove them as soon as possible. So that's you making the change and then we get to creating short-term wins. And I think this is really infrequently used, but it's really, really powerful. So this might be about as recognizing those people who are making the change and shouting about it. So when you're helping people go through change, let's hold up those ones who have got on board with it and recognize them. It could be about communicating Going back to our model of um, an organisation restructuring, it might be communicating and sharing the first deal that you got as a new sector so that everyone can recognise that there is success. This is really, really important because what this is doing is messaging to the laggards that the change is coming, the change has been successful and actually they're getting left behind. If we just ignore just the wins, the people are getting on board. What you're not doing is reinforce it. You're thinking about children. You need to reinforce the good behavior. So catch those people doing things right who are making the change and signal clearly to those who aren't that they need to come along for the ride. Then we get into the implementation and the nailing it on. And this is the pushing uphill again, and it's really hard. Um, one of the things I do recommend is that you might, if it's a large scale change, this might be the point at which you need to bring in fresh blood into your change team. One of the reasons I think that is that we all know different personalities out there that people are great at change, I'm sorry, people who are great at change are often great at starting things, but therefore, if they're great at starting things, they're hardly ever good at finishing things. 
So they've been through all the exciting stuff at the beginning and the communicating and shouting from the rooftops and you can probably get them as far as shouting about short-term wins. But when we talk about consolidation, which is a bit more of a process, possibly a slog, um, but it's something where you need a certain type of person, those people who are great at processes, at dotting the I's, crossing the T's, who keep on knocking over the obstacles. This is someone who you want to be in place here. If it's a system, it's the people who are really good with smoothing out systems and don't get bored easily. So this is where the consolidation, and if you keep going here, this is where we start to get the benefits. And on top of that, then you have the institutionalizing the change. So that would be where I'd say you're building on the change. So we've we've announced our first sale as part of the sector. It's where we then start having a conference within that sector, or we have sector awards so that the way in which we do things in this new organisational structure becomes embedded and it becomes the way we do things around here. So then it becomes institutionalised and then and only then have you completed the change. The reason it's so important to go up the other side and I think that the you analogy is really powerful because it's hard work pushing things uphill. You, were, you know, the unfreezing people can get quite excited about, you know, there's new vision. Um, the change itself is okay. It's still, you know, doing things and unblocking things, problem solving. But consolidation and institutionalizing the change can really feel like an uphill battle. And you need people to see things through to the end. Because if you don't do that, you never actually fully reap the benefits of the change. And that is my genuine belief as to one of the reasons why we have the problems that we have in terms of not, not getting the benefits that we should from change, because we never finish pushing it uphill, which means we never realise the actual benefits of going into that change in the first place. Quite often that means that you've got people who never started to change and those who tried to change, so you've almost got a split audience within your organisation. And you've got to decide whether or not they slowly move around or you end up having slightly lower level gains than you would have done otherwise had you seen it through to the end. So that was my whistle stop tour through Cotter's change model. You've got a more detailed version of it that you can download, which goes into it in more detail. I'm interested actually, if you've been through this yourself, how you might actually have experienced the change. You know, if you reflect on changes you've been involved in, do you actually find, or did you find that you had problems exactly where I'm saying, you know, at the freeze or unfreeze point? Um, I'd be really interested to hear. In fact, more than anything on this episode, thank you for listening. And if you have got something that you'd be happy to share, I'm working on a book at the moment called How to Be a Change Superhero, and I'm looking for case studies. So do reach out to me on social media. If you'd like to share your case study, you might get involved in the book. We'd lovely to hear your examples. But obviously, actually, I mean, thank you for listening so far anyway. And uh, I really reckon, um, really, really do appreciate it when people reach out to me on social media. Let me know that you've listened to the podcast. Let me know whether you got something out of it. It's hugely helpful because uh, it gives me feedback as to whether or not I'm doing things right or wrong. Uh, so really keen to hear from you anyway. Uh, so please do stay in touch and get in touch. And I look forward to talking and getting to know more of the audience over this next phase between now and Christmas. So that's enough from me, I think. We've hit the 23 minute mark. I tried to keep it fairly succinct. I apologise if that means that I've done one of those million miles an hour chat things. Let me know. 
um, if I need to slow down in future. And uh, thank you and do tune in next week. So this is Lucinda Carney tuning out from the HR Uprising podcast on delivering organisational change. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.